Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, as usual, J.W. Marshall, and we are so excited that you found us on this episode. Our guest today is Dr. Sonny Magana, and he is not only an author and many other things in his title, but I would classify him as an education futurist um, to the fullest extent of that title. Uh, Dr. Magana, how are you doing today? Um, Very well, J.W. Thank you kindly for that introduction. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. And uh, as we have seen in a few of our uh, season two guests, this is another returning guest uh, from the season one all-star team. Uh, We're excited to have you on uh, season two and future seasons um, and really excited to um, let you talk a little bit about uh, your new book um, that's going to be coming out in uh, a few months. Um, But before we dive into the book, I'd like to start season two with uh, a new question. And so the question is, who are you? And what do you love about what you do? Not what do you do, but what do you love about what you do? I'm a simple teacher. Uh, I'm a simple teacher is, is who I am. Uh, uh, I've always been that way. And what I love about what I do is I love learning. I can't help it. I, I, I just love the whole process of learning. And that I can't ever remember not loving learning, you know, except for a couple of times in school. But, you know, uh, with uh, some... Um, uh, challenging content, but I I love learning. I love learning how to learn. I love researching learning. I love helping other people learn how to optimize their learning. And that's, uh, uh, I think, a core element of everything that I do is to rekindle uh, that innate love of learning. Look, I, I, I said this the other day to, uh, to um, um, uh, a friend of mine. I said, you know, Love of lifelong learning is our birthright. That's a really cool idea. Uh, it's our birthright. The love of lifelong learning is our birthright. And now is an opportunity for all of us in the education space to help rekindle, just add a bundle of twigs onto that fire and nurture that innate lifelong love of learning, which is, it's a pre-existing condition. We just need to re-nurture it. So, so in a nutshell, I'm just a simple teacher who loves to learn. Well, and I love that answer because oftentimes we talk on this show about uh, boiling it down to two things uh, with our students is teaching them how to learn um, and that ability, that skill, and then just as important, inspiring them to want to be lifelong learners. Um, If teachers can do that, um, you know, I'm not going to say forget all the test scores and the the, um, cramming the knowledge in, but at the end of the day, that's what the students are going to take with them, especially after their K-12 education, is that ability to learn those skills and tools, and then hopefully that inspiration to want to keep learning, because nowadays uh, you have to be a lifelong learner to continue to, uh, you know, to, to be employable and, uh, and to succeed um, in today's global economy. So um, that's why we have you here. Um, we'll dive into the book now. Uh, so the book is called Learning in the Zone, The Seven Habits of Meta-Learners. And let's just start out uh, by giving our audience uh, an overview. And why did you write this book? Uh, Thank you very much. Great question. You know, I've been uh, researching uh, the intersection of technology and pedagogy and learning for four decades now. So I I look a lot 
older than I am. <laughs> maybe, maybe I look younger than that. I don't know. I've been at this a long time. I'm an old dog in this, uh, in this game of teaching and learning with technology. And I've been really working to try to find, as best as I can name it, a unifying theory of learning. You know, we have a lot of learning theories that exist, and some are more useful than others. Some are out of date. Some need to be updated. Uh, just when you think about it, our whole system of uh, education is in continual flux. You know, the advent of technology and education only been about 70 years, 60, 70 years, which is just a blink of an eye. We're still just scratching the surface of what's possible with digital tools and maximizing human learning capacity. So I've been on a, on a jag to try to find a unifying theory of learning that takes into consideration developmental psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience, behavioral science, educational technology research, and put it all together into some format, a framework that is sensible, it's easy to understand, and yields wildly awesome results. <laughs> and that's what learning in the zone is. It's, a, it's the culmination of that endeavor. I love it. And, and part of the research that I know you'll, you'll get into throughout the conversation, but just to entice uh, my audience to listen all the way through, is the, the research um, optimizing learning and performance by as much as 4x. Um, yeah. And even more. Confirm that that's actually true and, and give us a little bit of the secret sauce on um, what, what does that entail? Sure. No, I really appreciate that. You know, that research matters. Research matters probably now more than ever because the ed tech space in general, it's noisy. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of voices and that's good. I think that's helpful. That's healthy to have, you know, a lot of voices and a lot of narratives, but the challenge with that is that sometimes a research signal gets lost in the noise. So in education, just as in medicine, research really matters because it means that we, um, as researchers, try to find the true nature of relationships between variables. And the variables that I'm most interested in are teaching practices, technology use, and the learning that results from improved teaching practices and technologies. So my work has been peer reviewed. I've had compounding results over the past four decades and uh, showing that one can expect a four time gain in learning productivity, a quadrupling of learning productivity. But we saw effect sizes in the, uh, in the studies that were even higher. For example, the T3 framework, which I've developed has an effect size of 1.6 which is equivalent to a quadrupling, a four-time gain, as you kindly mentioned. But we also saw effect sizes even higher, an effect size of 2.0, effect size of 3.0, which is so off the scale. At the time, I was doing this work with Dr. Robert Marzano, and we wondered if those high, really high effect sizes were outliers. But now I've come to the consideration that maybe they're black swans. Maybe it isn't an outlier, but it's perhaps a black swan. We could, we could see a, an acceleration, a compounding, continued acceleration in learning uh, using these methods. And just by way of uh, evidence, th this work has been peer-reviewed by global scholars, 
and was uh, published in uh, Oxford University's Research Encyclopedia of Education. So it's really a very reliable thing. And everything that I'm sharing with you and the audience has been vetted at the highest level in the English language and exists in you know, Oxford's Research Encyclopedia of Education. So this is a safe bet. And it's more important now than ever. Um, as my audience knows, we talk a lot about uh, the learning loss and how do we recover. Um, and I like to pivot that conversation to say it's not just uh, enough to focus on the, the recovery and, and that's the end of the story to get back on grade level and then back to business as usual, but really to, to turn this opportunity into improving the ways that we teach and learn um, and, and hopefully based on your research and your, uh, you know, your, your books to give these students, today's students, the tools they need not just to catch up but to exceed where they would have been. Uh, pre-pandemic if we just would have kept doing things the way we're doing it in the past. Yeah, we have an opportunity that is just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to leverage our belief and our values and our entire education system to a higher level state than the state in which uh, we were um, uh, struck by the global pandemic. Um, and it, it's I, it's possible. Not only is it possible, it's highly probable. You got a greater than 50% chance <laughs> of, of having some uh, a, a rebound, a V-shaped recovery in education by following the guidance of these breakthrough findings and sticking with it. And that's why I wrote the book Learning in the Zone, because when you think of the zone, you know, most people immediately go to a sports uh, metaphor, a sports analogy. And uh, and I understand that. Uh, we, we have a lot of examples from professional athletes who are in the zone. Uh, you know, Tiger Woods is often Michael Jordan. Think of Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky. I'm a lacrosse player, so I think of Gary Gate uh, and the Gate brothers. And they were in the zone playing so far above their heads, pushing the limits of human performance to never-before-seen heights. We're in the midst of the Olympics now. We're seeing athletes performing at peak level. So my question was, is there such a thing as an optimum learning zone? If an optimum zone exists for other performances, athletic music performance, is there not a similar state of consciousness for the learner? Turns out there is. You know, and, and we're both musicians. We both share a love of uh, Texas blues and uh, uh, great, great music. Um, musicians refer to this as being in the pocket. You know, when you're in the pocket, you're in the groove, you're sucked in, uh, the um, rhythm section lays down, just a fine groove. And, you know, you're a bass player, I'm a guitar player. I, I need a good groove, good pocket, because then I just get, I get sucked into it and I'm just in the moment. And that's where the learn, that's where the zone happens when we're learning in the moment. Um, there are also strategies that are highly likely to help a learner realize their optimum learning performance. And I call the, the subtitle of the book is called The Seven Habits of Meta-Learners. Meta-learning is the new literacy. Let me explain what that is, because I think that's a relatively new term. Um, but it has its, its roots in uh, the great Alvin Toffler's work, uh, who wrote uh, Future Shock back in the 1970s. And Toffler said that the illiterate of the 21st century aren't the ones who can't read and write, but the ones who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. And with that eloquent, almost poetic statement, he laid a vision, a pathway forward 
that many of us decided to take. Um, and I just um, went, went, uh, went with it because I think the ability, helping learners learn how to, not just learn how to learn, but learn how to optimize how one learns, unlearn something when the preponderance of evidence um, contradicts one's belief system or current understanding. It's called cognitive dissonance. When we have the preponderance of evidence that contradicts what we think or what we believe we know, the meta-learner is able to unlearn things that are no longer valid or useful and relearn new pathways. And I think that's an elegant way to describe what meta-learning is, is the ability to optimize how one learns, unlearns, and relearns, and does so in a way that's joyous and rejuvenating. I love it. And now I want to know more. Can, can you give <laughs> us a, a high level of the seven habits? Yeah, you bet. Uh, and these are habits that, uh, you know, I picked up learning to play guitar. So in the book, I write about my own experience as a, you know, a journeyman a guitar player um, and um, uh, establishing uh, my, my strategies, um, which then become habits. So habits are really things that we do over time and develop them so to the point that they become more or less autonomous. You know, I call it autonomous memory, which is a kind of memory that will always have, but it takes very little cognitive load, you know, cognitive effort to make that habit manifest in some performance. Um, so strategies over time become habits. And I want folks to realize that anybody can develop these seven habits. Anybody can do it and can expect at least a doubling, perhaps a quadrupling or even more an increase in their performance. And the first habit is learning to commit. That's the first habit. Oftentimes in schools, we give students the goals and learning objectives and um, uh, outcomes. And that's really important. We have to keep doing that. But unless a learner makes that commitment and with their hearts and their heads, those learning goals are going to be sort of disparate. They're going to be external. They're not going to be intrinsic. So the first habit is make a commitment to your mastery goals, whatever they are. You gotta want it. And the the story is that when I when I first wanted to play guitar, my dad had a, an old Sears and Roebuck uh, six string, a silver tone guitar, uh, and I just digged around with this kid. I, I used to pretend to play, you know, pretended to be a Beatle, <laughs> and I, I didn't know how to play. I didn't know anything about the strings, the chords, the finger position, um, but I really, really wanted it, you know, and I wanted to learn how to play the song Imagine, uh, John Lennon's classic, and one day, I like, there was a, I flipped a switch, and I, I just made a, a promise to myself. I made a commitment that I was going to learn that song by the end of the summer and play it for my mom. And that started something. It, it, I didn't realize it, but I was really kind of um, living Aristotle's uh, maxim that uh, through discipline comes freedom. That's a great thought. You know, through discipline comes freedom. And prior to that, I always thought discipline was something to avoid. <laughs> you know, I avoided the discipline of, of my teachers, the principal. But here I established my own form of discipline in my own way, using my own language to realize my goal of learning how to play that song, Imagine. And that just lit a fire. And I had a passion 
that, that was lit. And once a learner's passion pilot light is lit, it'll never go out. So that's the first habit is developing the discipline of committing to a goal uh, with your whole being and not letting anything get in the way of it. And through that discipline of, of tending to our practice, we find freedom, freedom from distractions, freedom from wanting to give up, freedom from uh, uh, disengagement. And that's a really empowering place to be. All right, we're through one. What's <laughs> what's next? What's number two? The next one is, uh, there's a, a large body of research that uh, indicates how important it is for learners to practice self-regulation. And, you know, the, the pandemic has caused all of us, every human on the planet to um, uh, be in a state of anxiety. You know, we, we, this, we, we're living through trauma. We are all living through this trauma. And so that has a pronounced and deleterious effect on learning performance. We just don't learn as well when we're stressed or anxious or uncertain or fearful. And I think many of us uh, are living in a state of chronic anxiety. Uh, our teachers, our parents, our students, our administrators are in a state of chronic anxiety. So we need to practice self-regulation and self-care because through emotional regulation and effort regulation, we can achieve higher and higher levels. So there's, I, in the book, I, I have a number of exercises that uh, um, really focus one's presence on the present, being really in the moment and not being distracted by the past or the future, but being in the here and now. And there are some mental exercises and breathing exercises that help us be in the moment. And I can sum it up very, very quickly with a, with a, um, uh, a phrase, you know, uh, yesterday is a canceled check. Tomorrow is a promissory note. The only cold, hard cash any of us have is now. So we need to spend it wisely. I love it. And I'll just pause for a second and say, that's again, why we're doing this show. Season two is, yeah, we want to learn from the past and not forget about it. Uh, and yeah, we want to look to the future, but this season is really about the now. What's happening now? What can we learn from you right now in this moment? And how can we make an impact right now? Because our kids, our students need us right now. Um, and our teachers need us now, our, our uh, administrators, they need to really take this, uh, you know, this mental health seriously. And I know many of them, if not all of them, are trying their best and trying to do that. Um, but it's always good to, to hear from the experts, uh, you know, that uh, this is, you know, number right up there, the number two on the list. Self-regulation. Um, keep us going, number three. Right, well, once, once we develop the discipline of self-regulation through breath control, it seems very simple, but we can all learn how to breathe better. And yet, we often don't. So when we engage in uh, regulatory diaphragmatic breathing, and in the book, I give a number of exercises that folks can do, and I've done this with students for 40 years. I work with athletic teams at the moment uh, to improve their performance by calming the brain. What it does is when one engages in this process, you're able to more fully leverage your prior knowledge and activate it and use your prior knowledge as a tool to better understand current knowledge. And that's the third habit. Make a habit of leveraging prior knowledge, but in the moment, being very present and recognizing that some new 
content that you're interacting with is related in some way to what you already know. It could be some words, it could be some facts, it could be something parallel, it could be a complete, uh, it could be very different from what you know, but it's still you need to find some similarities and differences between one's prior active, active uh, or actualized knowledge base and use that as a tool. And what's interesting is that the term technology literally means scientific knowledge that's applied to solve a problem. And by activating prior knowledge in, in our hearts and minds of our learners, they are using their own mental cognitive technology, which is their prior knowledge base, and using it as a lever to better understand new and current learning problems. And I can relate with that being a podcast host. So much of what a podcast host does is they're leveraging that prior knowledge. And of course, you've been on the show before, uh, but they, you have to be in the moment and present and listening to know what prior knowledge to activate for the next question. And for anyone that's never hosted a podcast, it's a, it's a, it's a learning experience. Everyone should do one uh, if you're a student um, just to uh, experience what it's like because it is a, a an interesting uh, dynamic that sure. uh, if you've, you've never done it, it, it's hard to explain. But uh, as you're explaining uh, uh, leveraging prior knowledge, that's that's my first thought is um, it's a very engaging way to uh, be in the moment, but yet also uh, pulling from from the past and while learning things new. It's mm -hmm. it's uh, it's really um, it's really great. All right. Moving on, turning the halfway point to number four. <laughs> Yeah. We have to, uh, once we activate our prior knowledge, and you know, again, I, I, in the book, I talk about my ability to learn how to learn to play the guitar. And so my knowledge of chords and chord structure and chord patterns um, became the foundation upon which I was able to springboard to new challenging goals and um, commitments that I made. But here's the fourth habit is that we need to learn together. We learn better together than we do alone. So the fourth habit is to engage in contributive learning groups. Find groups that help you better understand the learning that you're going through right now. And playing in high school, I think it was like 14 at the time, uh, I had a group of pals that we were all learning the guitar and somebody would come in and say, hey, here's an E seventh chord. <laughs> what? what in the world is that? <laughs> How do you sevenths? What, what are sevenths? And so we would teach each other. That's very natural. It's a very natural thing for humans to want to teach one another. So contributive learning is a theory in and of itself. It's a learning theory that once we engage in emotional regulation, we, it gives us energy, it gives us motivation, you know, that, that desire. And then once that triggers our cognition and our ability to think with our prefrontal cortex. That's where executive functioning happens when we, when we stimulate our prefrontal frontal cortex. But once we engage in cognition, we understand something, we're compelled to share it. We're, we're a contributive species. So engaging in contributive learning groups is the fourth habit that is, I think, necessary uh, in our schools and allow students to teach and learn from each other. Even if they're making mistakes, that's okay. Because one of the things that's built into the, to the human brain is the ability to debug our thinking. Debugging is a pre-existing condition. So even if someone makes mistakes, that's okay. Because it gives us an opportunity to learn something more deeply. So that's the fourth habit, engaging in contributive learning groups.
And I got to share a story that I can relate <laughs> to on this front. Uh, many years ago, I, I took a uh, seminary class of all things. Mm-hmm. I was interested in learning more about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could only take one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked, what, what, who's the best professor? And uh, it was Dr. Heller at uh, SMU's Perkins School of Theology is, was the recommendation. And I'll never forget the first day of class. There are about 30 of us in this class. And he was about to, to start the class. And he made a really clear point that stuck with me ever since. He said, you know, what can we learn about this text from over 2,000 years ago um, that, that hasn't already been studied and, and already learned? And he said, it's this group of people in the room right now. You all come from different backgrounds with different experiences. Um, he touched a little bit actually on the learning and unlearning and relearning. He said a lot of things you've, you've probably learned about the Old Testament were, were not right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to dive deeper. But what gives him passion to teach this intro course every year is that he really takes the collective. And he's like, I learned something new from every group of students because they share their experience and their learning process in, you know, a communal uh, format. And he said there's something in his context very holy about that uh, learning together. That is, uh, you know, something very unique to that moment. And um, and that's always stuck with me that that is should be what we strive for every day in education is to create that unique communal learning environment where we're all learning together, but also learning from each other and uh, and the teacher included. Right. The teacher is also learning uh, every uh, day with the students. That's a beautiful story. It's very touching and so poignant because uh, and timely when you think about it, because in our classrooms, we need to recognize the power of the collective because the smartest person in the room is the room. Is the room. (laughs) (laughs) Right there with you. Yeah. Oh, all right. Number five, back half. Implementing learning frameworks. We need to have a framework for learning so that we think of learning as a journey. And so I've come up with this metaphor to help uh, students and parents and teachers and administrators sort of demystify this, the, the learning monolith, because we think of, lear- of learning as a monolith. So I broke it down into three parts. Think of it as a maze. Whenever we walk into a new labyrinth, and that's an ancient um, uh, metaphor, uh, the labyrinth is as a, a learning system. Whenever we enter some new learning experience, it's like we're walking into a maze. We have to observe what's going on. We have to use all of our faculties to interact with new knowledge and and get a sense of where we are. So we have to observe and orient. And then we need to decide what to do. So the first, the opening part of learning is what I call surface learning. That's entering the maze. And we have to learn new vocabulary, new facts, and new ideas that are built from those facts. And those facts are built from that vocabulary, the vocabulary words. But then that we need to acquire that and, and make that learning part of our permanent Themselves, acquire it. Then we have to go deeper. We got to go into the center of the maze. And in the center of the maze is where, uh, in uh, the uh, uh, Greek text, um, uh, shows uh, that that's where the, the Minotaur lives. <laughs> and the Minotaur was, a, I think, a, uh, a, um, uh, a metaphor for deep learning. So we have to kind of slay our ignorance and build some new deeper level of knowledge by going deep inside that maze, seeing how this new learning is similar or different from past learning. We need to uh, um, 
use reasoning. We need to use the, the tools of logic, the tools of inferential and default reasoning to deeply comprehend that new knowledge. But then we need to work our way out. We need to transfer that knowledge and get out of the maze and use logic and use different tools to apply that new learning, which we've deeply acquired in different contexts, getting out of the maze. And that's a good framework for learning, entering a maze, going deeper into the maze and deeply understanding. And then we've got to get out and apply that knowledge. And then it becomes part of our permanent self. So implementing learning frameworks, and it doesn't have to be a maze framework. You can use any framework you want, uh, but there's, Learning has three parts, surface learning, deeper learning, and then the ability to apply or transfer that knowledge in different contexts. And I offer the maze as one metaphor to help frame this process of learning. What do you think of that? Oh, I've got a lot I could say on this, but we're starting to run out of time. Okay. I can't share too many stories, but, <laughs> but I do like that, that it's the science of learning, that it's not just, oh, you need to you know commit to it and self-regulate, but there really is a science and breathing. There's a science in learning models, uh, Merrill's uh, principles, you know, there's all kinds of different models you could use there. But, um, but I do like that, that it is coming back to, um, you know, being intentional, I think is probably yeah. the most important thing there with a framework. And, you know, using the best uh, framework for that type of learning would probably be that higher level of um, a real, you know, um, you know, educator knows the the different principles and the different learning frameworks and can apply right. the right ones. Um, yeah. Reminds me a, a little bit of uh, Dan Pink, the New York Times bestselling author, uh, basically says, you know, everyone's a salesman to some degree. You, you're selling your thoughts and ideas, but there are different sales, um, and he calls them frameworks that you know you can, if you learn them, you can scientifically apply them to different situations to get better outcomes for the idea you're selling or the raise you're trying to get that kind of thing. And so I do like that there's this element of uh, there's a little bit of work involved. You got to know some frameworks and you got to be able to apply them to really optimize learning. That's right. Cause you got to know which phase of learning you're in. If you're entering the maze, you're going to use a different set of strategies than the strategies you use when you exit the maze. So it helps both teachers and learners contextualize the strategies that they use. So you use the right tool at the right time, the right strategy at the right time. Too often students either don't have enough strategies or they misapply strategies. Frameworks help us make sense of the complexity of teaching and learning in a way that is immediately understandable. And the next uh, uh, habit is really, once you're using a learning frame and you're, 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 you're gonna start to acquire a lot more knowledge. Now you need to categorize that. So the next habit is the ability to categorize, connect, and extend. How can you put all this knowledge into mental schema, into a cognitive um, filing system? And we all have one, we all use it, but often we use it either implicitly or, or not fully consciously. But to have a conscious schema, in our brains to organize disparate information, to make connections, to categorize, is exactly how our neurons work. Our neurons develop synaptic and neurological networks that drive information, pulses of you know, biomagnetic information through our, our brains. But we need to have a visual schema to organize new knowledge so that we can retrieve it more readily and then be able to use it more readily to connect it and extend it. And that's the, the sixth habit is the ability to categorize, connect and extend new knowledge into cognitive schema.
and that uh, you know just says to me you, you got to make it stick you got to make it concrete yeah. you got to part of it is application i'm sure and part of it is uh, time to reflect that's something we often don't take time to do is to really reflect on what we're learning um and so much of the learning happens when you're asleep right that you're processing yeah. continuously um that uh that's why it's better not to cram one night before the test but to soak up the information over a number of days or weeks so that you can sleep on it and continue to 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 make those connections you know in your subconscious but um but i think the points well taken to be intentional and, and to categorize connect and extend is gonna not only accelerate the rate of learning but also the retention exactly and the ability to to retrieve that that which we retain um so that's uh, that's a really powerful one like for example i've learned so many songs that if i didn't have some sort of a like a, a museum for to categorize blues rock uh, Texas blues, uh, uh, classic rock, uh, jazz, like I have all these categories and I can draw from them based on the style and the, the what I'm trying to achieve in the moment playing. That We all have the ability to create mental learning museums. But if we do so with greater intentionality and do it more mindfully, then that whole process is enhanced prodigiously. I love it. All right, we've come to number Last seven, <laughs> grand finale. Grand finale, and it's something that's a relatively new thing. I call it make a habit of generating meta-feedback. Meta-feedback is the final, the ultimate strategy which can become a habit. Let me explain what that means. Often, learners receive feedback, and the, the value of feedback in the learning process is, is, is well uh, cataloged. It's historic. But oftentimes the feedback comes from the wrong source. It's the wrong uh, information, the wrong uh, uh, feedback from the wrong source at the wrong time. What I suggest is that students learn how to develop their own feedback loops and generate their own meta feedback by regulating their emotional state or regulating their uh, effort, regulating the, the progress that they make and being able to keep in mind the big picture the thing that they aspire to, the thing that really is their passion and purpose, and constantly make connections between what is the learning I'm doing now, how well am I doing it, um, what do I need to do differently, and how does this connect to my larger goals and aspirations, the future self that I hope to uh, attain. And that speaks to Maslow's wonderful hierarchy of learning, and self-actualization is the highest psychological level in his wonderful hierarchy. And I've always wondered, well, how do you get there? How do you actually get to self-actualization? And it's, it's, it seems relatively straightforward. You have to know what is it that you aspire to do? What is the, the, your contribution to the planet and its people? How are you going to make the world a better place? And how is that big picture um, connected to what you're doing right now? So being able to keep the forest and the tree in your mind at the same time is the process of generating meta feedback and the results are are remarkable and i got a follow-up question on this one um how, how do you do that and, and specifically how do you build your own feedback loops without building your own echo chamber how are you uh, aware enough to to get the feedback that you that you want and not bad feedback because someone else is telling you what they think, and that's not an opinion you should listen to, but also how do you, you know, build a, a well-rounded, I guess, meta-feedback loop? 
You know, it, and it, it's intrinsic. You know, uh, it has to be generated from the learner. And all those other habits come into play to make that final metal learning habit for far more um, usable, uh, constructive, and um, uh, energetic. You know, we, we, when, when, we, when, we, look, when we have a goal and we can see that we're making progress towards that goal, that's intrinsically motivating. That helps us keep on track. And sometimes we hear information from an outside source that gets us off base, right? And sometimes, often it's well-intended, but it might be feedback that doesn't really help me improve in my process. What I'm suggesting is that we all have the ability to generate our own meta-feedback loops by establishing a clear and um, unambiguous vision of ourselves in the future, what we want to try to achieve, apply different strategies at different times in order to achieve that, keep track of our progress, and refrain from accepting feedback that is not helping us improve our process. And that discernment is an important concept. It's an important idea in, in generating feedback, being able to discern helpful and usable feedback from feedback that may not really help us get down the track. I love that. And that makes me think, um, obviously, a lot of people don't like criticism, but I, but I like feedback better. And I like the idea of working towards this goal and wanting to get better, wanting that feedback to get to my goal, to, to get better. And, and seeing my progress motivating me more to want more feedback because I know the feedback is helping. Um, so I, I like the idea that um, you're, you're getting that feedback from the sources that you consciously believe will help you not just feel good about yourself or tell you what you want to hear to get to the goal, but actually to get to the goal, um, knowing that some of that may be hard feedback, but it's going to be the feedback you need to get yeah. to the goal. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, often um, when we, and we, we get feedback all the time in, in schools, it, it, it's a really important part of the process. And, uh, you know, assessment is really feedback that's intended to improve performance. But if students rely on external feedback, they build a kind of dependency. And what I'm suggesting is that continue to do that. I, I think it's important for teachers and, and educators to provide stealth feedback, uh, unobtrusive feedback, summative feedback, formative feedback, but it's just as important, perhaps even more important, for learners to learn how to develop their own feedback loops so that way they can become more self-determined. Uh, and that's really where self-determinism comes into place. When students can uh, plan for their learning, express and represent their knowledge, self-appraise, and generate their own feedback loops interdependently. And that's what makes metafeedback different. It's intrinsic, but it's part of that larger feedback system so that we can more clearly determine feedback that's helpful and useful, the signal from the noise. And I'll bring a whole, whole circle, full circle. I feel like that ties back to number one, learning to commit all the way through to that sure. meta feedback. Uh, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time, but this has been, I've got a page full of notes here, uh, helpful for me. So I know that uh, this is gonna be really helpful for our audience. Last question, um, how can our audience learn more about you, about the work you do, and when is the book coming out? 
Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, uh, my uh, web presence is maganiaeducation.com. Uh, my Twitter feed is just at Sunny Magani, and I'll be making announcements and, and doing excerpts. We're doing a, a global book study uh, with educators and parents and leaders that are interested in implementing this work and getting four time gain and learning. Uh, and the book uh, should be coming out in uh, just before uh, summer break. So I think in the spring and May time zone is when we're uh, planning for a launch. It's looking really good. And uh, we're at the final stage of production. So look for learning in the zone sometime in the spring before summer break. I love it. Pre-order now. I will be uh, lined up to get my copy and uh, we'll have to have you back on later this year uh, to discuss uh, the success of the book as well as uh, the new things that uh, you continue to evolve and learn. Uh, Dr. Magania, thank you again so much for joining this episode. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm very grateful, JW. I so enjoy our conversations and the thoughtful questions that you pose. You draw these, these out for me in ways that are really artful. So I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me as a guest. Well, you're always welcome here. We will definitely have you back uh, many times over. And to my audience, thank you again for uh, listening to another episode or watching another episode. Be sure to check out our website to see the postings of all of our videos and audio recordings. And of course, follow us on uh, Spotify, Apple, Google, all the places you consume uh, podcasts. Thank you for joining uh, this episode. Hopefully we've brought some insights and uh, some things that you can practically start applying today. And uh, remember to always, always keep learning. Thank you.